Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Weber. I know I'm always saying, hey, I'm going to be doing podcasts and, you know, every couple weeks or this or that and I'm back on this stuff. I still hope to do that. Again, I'm sorry for the delay, but the summer has been busy in a good way. You know, these things are hopefully staying back open. You know, we don't have this pandemic causing us trouble again or something. And so I've been busy assigning baseball games and uh, working baseball games and going to an umpire camp myself and all those kind of good things and, and taking some vacation time with my family and, uh, you know, enjoying life a little bit. And so I've been thinking about this podcast. I always do. I always think of different things I can do for different segments and such. But, uh, you know, you got to boot up the computer and get the microphone hooked up and and kind of plan out what you're going to do for each of the segments, which I enjoy doing, but it takes some time and you, you've got to be committed to doing it at, at a certain moment. And uh, that moment hadn't come until now. So it, it's here. But I've got a few segments for you. I've got a pretty good sized show. Um, I'm going to talk about um, some observations and things that I've seen in um, games I've been watching of newer and veteran umpires. So some game observations and, um, you know, some stuff with mechanics and such, but also some problems I see with um, and some disconcerting things that I've seen on the baseball field this year as well. So I've got two segments to deal with that. Um, also, I'm going to do an umpire spotlight on Bernice uh, Guerra, uh, the first professional female umpire. Uh, maybe you don't know about her, but you'll learn a little bit about her. Um, and also, I was able to attend the CBUA four-man evaluation uh, camp in Indianapolis in late July here. So I will talk to you about my experiences there and what that might entail. I don't really know for sure until the future assignments might come out and see how I did, but I think I did all right. I think I held my own mostly. <laughs> so, you know, I did what I could do. I did the best I could do at the at the time. That's all you can do, right? So that's what I've got in store for you. Um, hopefully, uh, you guys have been having a good summer and been working some games and um, making a little bit of money doing it too and you know, staying hydrated and healthy and all that kind of good stuff. And I always appreciate it if you, you know, send me an email or contact me through social media. And those are in the show notes, those those things that I've got. And uh, you can always leave a voice message through the Anchor app, which is great. Um, I think you get like one minute, which is quite a bit. You can say a lot in one minute. Um, and if you ever want to do that or just pose a question on there, um, sometimes that's easier than typing stuff out for some people, then uh, I'd love to use that on the next episode, right? Or just ask a question and then I just play your thing there and, and then I just talk about it. It's almost like we have a little conversation or something, all right? So feel free to do that. So that's what I've got in store for you. Um, hopefully it's uh, entertaining and informative and makes you think a little bit. And then maybe in the future makes you a little bit better umpire. That's always the thing. I know I, I become a little bit better umpire each time I do one of these episodes, you know, because it gets me thinking about stuff, right? So sit back and relax and make sure that you can hear me just fine with your speakers or your your um, AirPods or whatever you might have in your ears uh, for another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. 
So here at the end of July, I was um, lucky enough to be invited to the CBOA uh, Mid-American Advanced Umpire Clinic in Indianapolis, the uh, four-man um, evaluation clinic. Um, so each year they run this, um, the four-man invitation only, um, in Indy. And it's a, an opportunity for um, CBUA members, which is basically Midwest umpires or guys kind of east of the Mississippi, I guess, um, to, you know, show their abilities to uh, some D1 conference coordinators, um, namely Rich Fetchett and uh, Mike Conlin. And, uh, you know, identify guys, promote qualified guys up to um, the higher levels, you know, more of the uh, major conference level uh, umpires. Um, so we're talking guys that might move up to like Big 12 or maybe uh, Big 10 or something like that. And so there's this, you know, 18U tournament that's happening uh, there at the big complex there in Westfield. And uh, you end up working a game uh, at uh, each of the positions. All right. So um, each of the bases. So, you know, I started out at second base. I did second, first, plate, third. That was kind of my rotation and uh, everybody's going to end up with uh, two games on one particular day and one game on the other days um so it was like a thursday through saturday situation it was a great experience very intense uh, i've been to a good number of umpire camps over the last few years and and i, I attribute that to the successes and opportunities that i've gotten um and uh, I learned a lot, and um, I have uh, I have no idea what will come of it. I guess in the end, um, I think I held my own. Um, you know, there's some great umpires there, some guys that can really do you know some great work on the baseball field. So um, and, and guys better than me, no doubt about that. Um, so hopefully, um, you know, I showed that I belong, and uh, I, I think there's different levels of guys there. There's guys like me that, you know, just ba barely cracking into some D1 stuff, and, uh, I'm you know, I got an invitation from, from you know, Rich Fetchett, and so I'm going to go, you know. So it cost me some money to go, of course, but, you know, I, I don't think you really can say no if, if you can make it work, right? You better have a good reason. Um, I'm just trying to maintain you know where I'm at maybe maybe get a few more opportunities but other guys are there they're working you know full d1 schedules and um, they're trying to crack into like big 12 or big 10 I, I don't really know if that's me okay <laughs> probably not you know may, maybe at some point if I'm lucky but who knows right that, that to me that's a little bit out there other guys you know maybe they're working some of the major conference stuff and get a full um, D1 schedule, they work some mid-majors as well, and they're looking to maybe get some uh, postseason opportunities. Maybe they never had a regional or something, or whatever the case is, or maybe they had a regional and they're hoping they can get a super regional sometime, something like that. That's not me either. So I think there's different levels of guys and what they're trying to achieve, all right? Anyway, um, Chris Kosky and uh, Tim Farwig are the two guys that kind of put everything together. Chris Kosky, a lot of you might know, uh, you know, Kyle's World Series umpire, very successful. And um, I already mentioned, of course, that Rich Fetchett and Mike Conlon were there um, watching and evaluating guys as well. Um, Scott Taylor, D2 coordinator, was there as well. 
Um, Jim Jackson is one of the um, instructors and evaluators there, our College World Series umpire. Um, Grady Smith was there. He, uh, you know, Jim Jackson evaluated one of my games, um, and Grady Smith evaluated a couple of them, and, and Grady Smith is a College World Series umpire. Um, Mark Ditsworth was there. Um, he, along with Jim Jackson, of course, um, evaluate umpires during the season, you know, for postseason possibilities and such for the D1 level. And Ditsworth, of course, is a College World Series umpire himself and, um, you know, has a tremendous resume. Um, Mark Winters was also there. He's one of the two umpires this year that is uh, uh, of the Americans that are working the Olympics. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, quite a resume as well. When we um, weren't on the field, uh, we had a classroom sessions uh, each of the three days for around two hours um, with um, Tim Cordell and uh, Danny uh, Jimenez, and they did a great job. Had all kinds of uh, interactive, you know, slides and uh, video, and a, a really good presentation at a place that was a little bit off off site there. And they talked about strike zone, hit hit by pitch, first play, slide rule stuff, um, uh, flagrant collisions, you know, the whole collision rule. Um, what else? Uh, they talked batters interference and just you know general interference, um, back swing interference. Um, um, the, the whole concept of clearly hindering, um, you know, what that means. Runner's lane, we talked about that quite a bit. You know, what constitutes a catch, um, obstruction, um, the uh, runner's passing, um, fight rules. Um, we even did, uh, uh, you know, stuff you know, about bunts, video review, quite a bit on video review, which in a way really starts a... I don't know if I ever get an opportunity to work leagues that have the video replay. Um, you never know. You never know what's going to happen, I guess. So you got to be ready. Well, that stuff just kind of, you know, puts a little pit in your stomach because you're like, oh boy, you know, that's um, that's a step up on, on things. But anyway, we talked about that as well. So they did a wonderful job and, um, you know, made you think about that kind of stuff. You know, as a teacher and kind of a guy that will... I, I geek out about all kinds of things. It might be the Beatles. It might be, you know, vinyl records. It might be, you know, Star Wars or whatever. I do that with baseball. I do that with umpiring. I do that with everything. So I always find that stuff really interesting um, to um, to take in, you know. And, and, and some other guys, I don't know, maybe they get a little bit bored with it, but I, I like that kind of thing for sure, all right? Anyway... The whole point um, after this camp is that they, they take all the evaluation sheets because it looked like a pretty detailed evaluation sheet, and they um, put it, uh, tabulate everything up, and then send them along to the collegiate assigners for assignment considerations. So I guess you don't really know how you did. I don't know. Maybe they send us something. I haven't seen those tabulation sheets. I thought they were supposed to see them. But nonetheless, whether you get them or not, you're really going to know how you did when you start getting some assignments in the in the fall and winter time uh, when they start coming out. We'll find out. You know, um, to me, I just hope I go and I don't get less than I might have gotten. <laughs> like, like, wow, why did this guy even show up here? <laughs> Who invited him? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. 
here's number 52 or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, you know what, even if you are number 52, you still are a pretty dang good umpire. I tell you that, um, just being there. So I, I guess there's something to be said. It's kind of like, you know, the worst guy in a major league team or something, or, you know, an Olympian that doesn't win anything or something like that. It's just good just to be there. But uh, nonetheless, the goal is to um, progress and to improve your, your situation. Speaking of that, there's always some guys um, at every camp I've ever been to that, you know, they're, they're like the guys that are, they, they think that they can just talk to the assigners or to the evaluators or whoever might be running things and that that's going to help them. Um, yeah, I see that everywhere. Even these guys that seem to move up, maybe that's helped somebody. I don't think it does. You know, if they think you can work and they think you can handle a certain situation, then they, they might give you the opportunity. If they don't, they're not going to. It doesn't matter how much you smooth somebody. And this goes with, you know, guys that work high school baseball. I see that too. They, they want to talk to me or another assigner or something like that, thinking that, you know, they're going to get better assignments because, you know, they're friendly with us or something. Now, are there situations, um, probably in all levels of baseball, where if you are dependable and uh, you're somebody that helps out uh, assigners or other people that are in charge that you might get an opportunity? Yes, that happens. But they're not going to give you that opportunity unless they think you can handle it because it's going to come back on them, right? I mean, so why would you do that, you know? Um, if there's a handful of guys that can handle it, and this one you know, one of the guys kind of sticks out because, you know, he's always, you know, right there and very reliable and dependable, and, and he's helped out the assigner in certain situations when he was in a tight spot, then, yeah, he might give that guy the game over some other people. But that's really about it. You're not going to start, you know, working Big 12 games or something or Big 10 games just because, you know, you had a few beers or something with uh, one of the assigners. That, that's not the way it's going to work. I, I tell you that right now. <laughs> okay, guys, I think that you're crazy. Okay, um, and some guys they get too worked up about everything too when they because we got evaluated after each game. You work the whole you work a whole game, you know, two hours or whatever, and then right afterward, immediately you go and you talk to the person that was evaluating you. And they tell, and they go through each of the guys, and they tell, you know, they, they try to say some things that they thought you did well if they see that, but you know, they're always going to point out even just little things that they think that you can do better, and and honestly, for most of us, there's always something, right? And I expect there always to be something because I know, I mean, I try to be perfect out there, but um, you know, you're never perfect out there. And some of these guys get a little bit bent out of shape when they're doing that. I mean, they, you know, they. Oh, did you think that uh, I was, you know, running this way or that? Or you think I misread that fly ball or, you know, whatever it might be? And it's like, you know, just, you know, it is what it is. They want to say something. I mean, they're, that's kind of what their their job is at that point is to point out every little thing that they might see. Now, some guys see things that others don't and vice versa, right? So it's different for each evaluator and you just take it or leave it. And you know that that's going to go in their little report. But still, it's going to come down to whatever the assigners think and uh, the kind of games they have and the location of those games and who they think is capable of doing it. I guess it's the overall body of work. Are you capable of working at that particular level? If they think you are, then they might give you the shot to do it. If they don't, then you got they either will never give it to you or you have to improve and get better and, and hope that you get it in the future. It might be years down the road. Who knows, right? So I always find that pretty um, 
And it's not really amusing. Sometimes it's a little annoying. Sometimes it is a little amusing, but I just take it for what it is. Or guys that when they are talking to you, they won't own up to something that they know they screwed up a little bit. And, and usually the screw-ups, like frequently for, for this four-man stuff, um, if you're one of the base umpires, it's misreading a fly ball. All right, you, you went out or you didn't go out when you should have or something like that, right? Frequently, the guy runs over and catches the ball, and it's no big deal. It's just really the umpires noticing. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a big deal to misread a fly ball, okay? But it's not like, you know, a, a big blown call or something like that. It's not like a rotation thing like maybe in three-man, which you can have the rotation um, problems, of course, in four-man, but it's less likely. Um but it's usually like, you know, the other guy should have had that fly ball or you should have stayed back or those kind of things. And to me, when I'm, I mean, I always own up to those things because I know what it is. And and also, usually when that happens, I know that I could have read it better. Then I try to think of, well, why did I do that? Why did I mess that up a bit? You know, frequently, as is the case with most things in umpiring, because you are too quick in your judgment or your decision, right? You're too quick to to either not go out or go out, and or you didn't. Um, usually here in three and four man, of course, if you're not reading your partner well, because you got to read your partners, of course, a lot more in three and four man. Um, or you were like there. I had one fly ball when I was working first base um, that when the ball is hit off the bat, I just assumed. When you start assuming things, you know how that goes that it was going to be kind of a routine fly ball to right field. He's just going to have to jog in a little bit and just catch it. And I you know, looked at the fly of the ball, but I didn't turn quickly enough to see where the fielders were going. I've got the second baseman going back. I've got the shortstop, or not shortstop, the center fielder coming in. The right fielder's coming in. So I've got converging guys and the second baseman going back. The second baseman ends up kind of catching it over his shoulder a little bit. You know, He made the final out of the inning, no big deal. But I didn't go out. Should have gone out. We got converging fielders and a guy with a older, over the shoulder catch. I mean, those are two qualifications to go out on a ball. And I said, well, I should have. I did not. And why did I do that? Because I watched the ball for a tick too long instead of looking at the fielders. I know what I did. And if I have that situation again, which I will at some point, um, I'm going to try not to make that mistake. Because that's really all you can do is you know what you did and then try to correct it. Right now, you might do the same dumb thing the next time. Okay, hopefully, you don't, but it does happen. And if you do, then hopefully, you won't do it the next time. All right, if you keep doing it, I guess you maybe we should find something else to do. Right, (laughs) but at some point, you've got to um, stop that. Now, you might, you know, be really good at reading fly balls from all the different spots that you work, and still. Every once in a while, you're going to just not be thinking quite right or your brain is working a little funny uh, in that moment or your concentration is not at 100%, but it's at 95% and you misread something because we're human, right? We do those kind of things. And you can kick yourself about it for a little bit, but you've got to just get back out there and try to do the right thing the next time and hopefully it doesn't happen for a long time again. But we know that stuff happens, right? So I'm always one to own up on it. Some of these other guys I see, you know, they they just hope people miss their mistakes, I think, and that nobody says anything, and they think that, you know, oh, he had a, a flawless game or something like that. And I don't know if I've ever had, like, a flawless game. I mean, I guess if nothing happened and everybody's getting, you know, you know there's all kinds of strikeouts or something, and I'm just on the bases and, and there's no plays for me, that's the easy way to have a flawless game is when you don't have many 
many situations to, uh, that you have to call, right? Um, but, you know, um, you know, we don't have very many games like that, right? Usually there's some something happening, and, and as, you know, the ball usually finds you, and it finds the umpire too, and you better be ready and concentrating um, every second of the game that you can, right? Anyway, so it was a great experience, very intense. Um, I felt like I, I held my own, you know. Um, I, I haven't worked very much for man other than in the um, MHSAA high school, you know, uh, playoffs and finals and such. Like, for example, when I work second base, um, that's only the, the second full game I've ever worked at second base in format. And so, you know, positioning, just positioning on that, you know, how far are you, how far off of the, the dirt onto the grass are you? I like to be on the, the second baseman's side, all right? How far over are you toward right field? Because here it's like um, we worked a little bit differently and simplified it for high school stuff. Here you've got to read the fly balls and, um, you know, if it's a routine thing, then you've got to back it up and get yourself to um, second base for any potential, you know, if the ball is dropping, any potential play there. A guy's trying for a double or something like that. And um, if not, then you got to read it and get out on the fly ball and get your, your, your angle for it. So early, like first inning, I'm too far over and a little bit too far out. And then I figure this out. I'm like, man, I'm not going to be able to get there quickly enough if um, this ball is dropped or something like that. So I had to readjust it. And, of course, they mentioned that, you know, uh, Jim Jackson was uh, evaluating me on that game. And I'm like, well, Jim, you know, <laughs> you know I had to figure this thing out. It's the only second time I've done it. I'm going to be honest with you, you know, full disclosure here. It's the only second time I've ever done that. I'm still learning a little bit how to do it. And I think I figured it out. There was a fly ball that I went out on when I didn't need to. Uh, that was a little bit, that was in the first inning. But, um, you know, I certainly could improve a lot of things that I did there. And, and I would if I had more experience doing it. But, um, you know, I thought that I did pretty well, all things considered. Um, did I work it as well as other guys? No, because I haven't worked it that often. But that's what it is. I think second base is the trickiest of all the spots to work in format. I know some of you might disagree, and feel free to let me know. Um, the plate, you know, you only got a few rotations, and you're just calling your balls and strikes. It's this, The plate is not the easiest. It's the simplest, all right, because you're, you're doing things that you normally do, calling balls and strikes, and you just have minimal rotations that you're responsible for. And then first and third base, um, I don't think those are, are easy, but they're very similar to what you do in three-man and how you read the fly balls. Um, you know, you've got your second base umpire that you've got to pay attention to, but I, I think that those are a little bit um, easier. Like third base, I think, is probably the easiest. And then first is next, um, as far as the bases, and second's the, the toughest. And I think the simplest and easiest thing to do is the plate uh, in four-man, as long as you're calling a good strike zone, I guess, right? So that was kind of my opinion on that. And um, it, it was... Um, it was an interesting opportunity, and um, I'm glad I was able to do it. I was glad when it was finished, too, and guys <laughs> just want to get through things, right? And I guess I'll find out in the fall if I did decently enough to uh, garner a few opportunities uh, come the springtime. So there you go. I've got an umpire spotlight for you. Uh, this one is a female umpire, Bernice Jera, and uh, she's considered to be the first female umpire in professional baseball. 
she attended and graduated from the Jim Finley Umpire School in 1967. And after winning a discrimination lawsuit against the National Association of Baseball Leagues in 1972, she received a contract to work in the New York Penn League. And then on June 24, 1972, she worked the first game of a doubleheader uh, between the Geneva, New York Senators, and the Auburn, uh, New York Twins. And then she resigned her position before the start of the second game, saying that she became uh, disenchanted with umpiring due to the unwillingness of her fellow umpires to cooperate with her on the field, which that would be... (laughs) Pretty, um, pretty bad there. A historical marker uh, noting Jarrah's accomplishment was placed in Blue Spruce Park near the birthplace, uh, near her birthplace in um, Ernest, Pennsylvania. And that marker, uh, if you go there and, and read it, it says, uh, uh, Bernice Shiner Jarrah, she lived from 1931 to 1992, baseball pioneer, Native of nearby Ernest made history as first female umpire in professional league, overcame discrimination and death threats to shatter gender barriers, barred by minor league baseball for five years before winning landmark lawsuit, debuted June 24, 1972 in New York, Pennsylvania League game at Geneva, New York. Groundbreaking achievement thrust her into the national spotlight and opened doors for other women and men uh, dealt, um, you know, denied umpiring opportunities because of arbitrary restrictions. So it's a place of honor at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, where her photograph, pink whisk broom, and uniform are housed. So growing up there in Pennsylvania, uh, she loved baseball as a child and uh, played as an outfielder, and she umpired games when she was a kid. And she never considered a base a career in baseball until she was already in her mid-30s and married and living in Jackson Heights, New York, and working as a secretary. Um, according to a, a Times article, the idea to become an umpire just suddenly hit her one night, and she saw, um, she saw her working umpiring games in slums as a form of social welfare, as having a woman on the field would lead to less trouble and encourage other women to attend the games. And she sold her husband on the idea. He was a freelance photographer, um, and you know, with this kind of concept. And she enrolled in the, you know, the baseball umpiring school uh, in Florida in 1967. Um, so, you know, as we know, up to that point, umpiring had been strictly a male profession, and the school had no facilities for her. And she spent much of the six-week program living in a nearby motel. Uh, by several reports, um, she excelled. She, she was good. But she was rejected by the um, NABL, which claimed that she did not meet the physical requirements of the job. Ed Doherty, a baseball exec, he claimed that umpires needed to be 21 to 35 years old and a minimum of 5'10 and 170 pounds, while uh, Jarrah was only 5'2 and 126 pounds, and she was 38. So um, Jarrah even had prior experience umpiring for the National Baseball Congress in, in Bridgeton, New Jersey, as well as a um, recreational program in the slums. But this was not enough to get her a job. She was uh, unable to gain employment as a female umpire and on March 
1969, she filed a sex discrimination case under the uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act with the New York State uh, Human Rights Commission. So this is a little precursor to Title IX kind of stuff. In her complaint, she accused both the New York Professional Baseball League and its president, uh, Vincent McNamara, of not employing her as an umpire due to her sex, which is 100% true. <laughs> That's pr- pretty much it, right? In his rejection of her application, McNamara cited single-gender dressing rooms and foul language on the field as reasons why females should not umpire games. I mean, that's a different uh, time period there, right? So, undeterred, she fought the uh, the NABL in court for five years. Um, Representative Mario Baigi represented her legally in court, and using Jared's story as inspiration, he even introduced an equal rights constitutional amendment to the House during his time in Congress. On January 13, 1972, she finally won a discrimination suit against the NABL, winning approval in the, the Court of Appeals in a 5-2 decision. Though she was not a member of uh, women's liberation groups and she was a uh, staunch uh, ad, um, adherent of work equality um, and viewed this as a huge victory, she then received a contract to work in New York Penn League, as we mentioned, opening the door for her to become the first female umpire in pro, pro baseball. And so that happened on June 23rd of 72, and she gained national attention, and she umpired that first Class A minor league doubleheader. Um, the game was a near sellout, 2,000 people attending the game uh, there in Geneva, New York. In the fourth inning, um, Gerald ruled Auburn base runner Terry Ford safe at second on a double play and then reversed her call. And the Auburn manager, Nolan Campbell, disputed the decision and said that Jarrah's first mistake was putting on an umpire's uniform and her second was blowing the call. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Campbell uh, was ejected from the game, so good for her. But Jarrah still uh, decided to resign between games, which was later said to be planned, saying she became disenchanted with umpire when her other, umpire, other umpires refused to cooperate with her on the field. Which, you know, I'm sure there was some sexism going on at that time. She was scheduled to be the home plate umpire for the second game. Man, ditching the plate job, right? That's not so cool. Anyway, uh, Jira cites the cool resentment about the other umpires and the baseball establishment as a motivation for her decision to resign. Uh, Not her dispute with the Auburn manager, Nolan Campbell. This, combined with both verbal, written, and physical threats, disgusted her and contributed to her disillusionment with baseball culture. Eight men, for example, allegedly shattered the light outside Jarrah's motel room and cursed at her the night before she umpired her first game, perceiving her, um, per- perceiving her as an attack on baseball's male fraternity. Though she resigned not long after becoming an umpire, uh, Jarrah saw this as a larger symbolic victory for women participating in sports historically perceived as for men only. Uh, Bernice would always say, I could beat them in the courts, but I can't beat them on the field. Steve Jarrah, her husband, uh, quoted his wife as saying. Although she stopped umpiring, uh, she stayed in the game. She went on to work for the New York Mets in uh, the team's community relations and promotions from 1974 to 79 before retiring to Florida. Uh, she died of kidney cancer in 1992 um, down in Florida, and she was only 61 years old. So definitely very interesting um, and certainly, you know, helped pave the way for others uh, that followed her. And um, I find it interesting. You know, I'm not a real big guy. I don't meet the five foot ten 
170 pounds. Well, I, I can meet the 170 pounds. That, that's not always a big problem, right, guys? But the 5'10", I, I'm below 5'10". Um, so I guess, you know, I'm not trying to be a pro umpire, but I don't know if that's really the case so much anymore. But you do see a certain look of uh, professional umpires nowadays. And if you're on the shorter end of things, um, you got to be even better, I, I'd have to say. So there you go. Um, our umpire spotlight, Bernice Jera. Well, I've had the opportunity this past spring and summer to get out and watch some new umpires work some of their first games, um, maybe ever, um, or definitely their first seasons at certain levels, maybe the high school level, maybe working higher level summer baseball. And there's some common things that I see happening that I think some of us more veteran guys maybe don't always think about because hopefully we're doing things correctly and, and sometimes you know, once you get through certain mechanics, particularly like um, two-man mechanics, and I hope this is the—I assume it's the case with three and four-man mechanics as well—it um, just becomes more automated. You know, your body kind of moves in the right direction, and and you're just where you need to be 99.9% um, .9 of the time. Um, when something strange happens, that's where you know we might get in trouble, and we got to make sure we're pre-pitching and thinking. But uh, nonetheless, there are some things that I see. Um, so I'll just go through a few of these, and this might be useful for um, newer guys out there that listen to the podcast. I know I've got a good number of those, and uh, maybe some veteran guys that are trying to help some of those uh, guys that are coming along and, and, you know, make them a little bit better, and hopefully they stick with it, right? I mean, that's the idea, too. All right, so indicators. I use an indicator. I know some guys don't use an indicator. Um, I certainly don't use an indicator on the basis. If you see a new guy doing that, or if you're a newer guy doing that, put that thing back in your pocket or in your car or the locker room or something like that. We don't use indicators on the, on the field. Okay. While we're working the bases, um, we don't take plate brushes out there or things like that as well. I mean, let the softball umpires do that crazy stuff. Right. Uh, but anyway, guys looking at their indicators too much when they're calling balls and strikes, right? We want to be very subtle. I mean, sometimes we do have to look at it. Something happens. We want to make sure the count's 1-2 or something and not 1-1. One, one. Um, so we look down. But you want to be very discreet about it. And hopefully you can look at it. Um, you know, like is it down by your 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 thigh or something like that. And you just kind of take a quick glance at it or something to see what the count was. Right? Um, hopefully there's lots of times where we remember the count already. We don't have to do that. But we know sometimes strange things happen or there's a weird sequence and um, we might forget the count for a second, all right? We don't want to be staring at it right in front of our face every time. I had a couple guys doing that, and, and I mentioned that to them because it, it does make you look um, indecisive, right? Um, so um, when should we announce the count, all right? Um, you know, when the next pitch, you know, you know, game action, when are we going to do it? Well, most veteran guys and things I've learned from people and what I try to do as well is that you usually always announce a count when it's either 1-2 or 2-1 or 3-0 and then 3-2. Those might be the only times that you really should announce the count. Now, sometimes you could announce the count when it's 1-1. One one. If there was a bunch of foul balls and then there was one and, you know, the first baseman and the catcher and the pitcher are running over by the fence and, you know, whatever, the guy slid and he didn't catch it. It's another foul ball and you come back and you're putting a new ball back in play and you're like, hey, it's 1-1 one, one here. And then you go with it. So those kind of situations where it might seem like, hey, I don't know if everybody knows what the count is here. I want to make sure people know what it is. You can do it. But otherwise, just do one two two one three zero three two. That's it. Try to just do that. 
whenever those counts come come um, come about. All right. We don't need to announce that there's an OO count. Okay. O1. You only you know announce only that when there's runners on and there's a foul ball. Maybe you might re do that if something happens. Um, O2. You know. Next pitch has a much higher chance of resulting in a swing. So maybe you might do that, especially if there's some lull in the action. But uh, if you just do 1, 2, 2, 1, 3, 0, 3, 2, and um, you don't really do much of the other ones, that's fine. If somebody asks for the count, certainly give it to them. All right. Some other things that I've noticed with um, lesser, lesser experienced guys. Um, moving up to cover third base too often. All right. We, as a plate umpire, I'm talking. Um, and this is two-man, right? Because that's what most of us are working most of the time out there, particularly during the summer. Um, so really, the only time that third base umpire should be covering third uh, with runners on first and third and a runner on first, for example, is uh, when the uh, a ball is hit to the outfield and an outfielder has a play on the ball, right? Um, I know we also have a double tag situation with first and second, and you cover it there as well, and you get the safe out there. So those are our three opportunities to do that, and it's when, you know, you see, you know, the, the guy might be committing to third, then you get up there, all right? Too often, I see guys moving up there on an infield, you know, on a ground ball, all right, or a bunt situation. That's even worse. Um, they think, oh, well, my partner's got that play at first. I better get up and cover third base because he might not be able to get back. I pregame it that, hey, any boy on the infield, I don't care if that guy bunts it and the guy from first is going to try to take third. I'm going to get the out at first. I'm going to come back across the back of the mound in that working area and get in the best position I can, and I'll get that play at third. That's all me. You stay there. Why do we not want our guy doing that? Number one, runner's lane, Okay. I was watching my nephew play last weekend, and I saw two plays in one game in which the plate umpire, one of them was a blatant miss where the kid ran all the way on the grass to first base on a ball, you know, on a bunt out in front of the plate. And he missed the runner's lane. Why? Because he's, he's all, you know, almost past the dirt up toward third base, you know. Up the third baseline. He can't see that. He's going to miss it. It's your responsibility on a play on the infield is both foot swipe tag and runner's lane, right? Um, so make sure that you're there and train yourself to do that and don't make that a bad habit. And your partner should be over there to get any potential play that develops at third base. You need to pregame that stuff. And if something is missed, then it's on him. It's not your job to get up there. And also, how how good a look are you going to get up there anyway, okay? Plus, if there's an overthrow, your responsibility is for overthrows at first base, if the ball goes through a fence or over it or something like that. Um, so you you got to be there, man. You know, if the ball gets to the outfield and an outfielder comes in and has a, a reasonable shot to pick it up and throw it someplace, you know, like the third base or whatever, then get over to the third base. Otherwise, you're not there, all right? So I see that with many guys. And um, I know some of you out there are like, well, I've got a partner that's kind of slow and he can't, you know, get over there to third base when he's working the bases. Okay, for one thing, maybe he shouldn't be working if he's that slow. But also, it you don't really, okay, you just got to work across the working area. It's not really that many steps to get over there. And it's always angle over distance when you're working two-man anyway. So you're not going to get right on top of the play to begin with when you're working the bases. All right? 
So make sure we work on that and help those younger guys, if you're an experienced guy, to make sure that they're not making that um, bad habit something that they do all the time. And a final thing I want to mention for our less experienced guys, and I suppose this could go for some of our veteran guys because I know there's some out there that can work on this too, is communication, all right? Um, letting your partner know uh, what you're doing on a play, all right? And I do this frequently even on like routine play. So let's say there's a fly ball to left center field. There's nobody on. I'm in A. I'm working the bases. And my partner's there. Let's say my partner is Jim. And boom, ball is hit there. I read it. I react. And I'm like, Jim, that's you. And I'm running in, cutting in to, you know, I don't really pivot now, but I'm getting into the middle of the infield. You know, see the touch at first and maybe be ready for a play at second base, right? So I'm doing that. If I was working the plate and uh, there was a ball out there and Jim was working first, you know, next game of a doubleheader, I'm getting out to the grass and getting the best angle I can on that play left center, and I'm yelling as I'm running out there, that's mine, that's mine, I got that. And I'm out there, and I get set, and I see the catch. Hopefully the guy does catch it, right? And that's another thing, too, is getting out to the grass on your fly ball responsibility as a plate man. I see a lot of less experienced guys not always doing that as well, all right? But communicating. You know, if you, um, there's a, you know, runners on first and second or runner on first or, or first, you know, you know, just a runner on first and there's a fly ball down the right field line and your partner's inside and be in B or C or whatever he's at. Um, and you're like, I've, I've got the line, I've got the ball or whatever it is you want to say. You're letting him know that. Of course, your partner should know that you probably are going to take that fair foul catch, no catch, right? But you should be talking about that anyway. You should be communicating loudly and making sure that you guys are on the same page and you know where you're going. When you're coming up the third, you know, you're like, Jim, I'm here, I'm here, I got three. Jim, I'm going back, you know. Um, a good partner on the bases too, if he knows that guy's not going to be, he looks like he's slowing down coming into second base, he kind of gives you the stop sign, puts a hand up, I got this, I got this, and then you can turn around, you're like, and then you can still say, I'm going back. Those kind of things um, you need to communicate well and loudly because, you know, you guys are a team out there. And that's a thing that I don't see a lot of the less experienced guys doing, probably because they're just worried about making sure they're doing the right thing. I understand that. But it's okay. Even if you yell the wrong thing, just start trying to do that. And um, one, also, if you're being evaluated, that's impressive. Guys see that. They know that you're in it. You're communicating with your partners, um, you know, whose fly ball it is, particularly when you're working the V and stuff. And, you know, there's one on the line and this and that. There might be something in between. So if you're doing that, even on the routine fly balls, then when there's one that's an in-betweener of whose coverage it might be, you know, one hit right at the left fielder and, and is it the plate guy's ball or is it, you know, is it on in the V moving for the, the base guy? Well, if somebody takes it, then we know who it is and, and you can kind of move on from there, right? So um, those are, you know, three big things that I've kind of noticed in some of the games that I've observed this year. Hopefully that's um, helpful to you if you're a newer guy. And those are some things that maybe you can also talk about to new guys in your area that you might be trying to help and make them a little bit better. Um, communication, always a big thing. So keep those in mind. If you got some other things that you've noticed, um, maybe as a veteran guy, uh, let me know uh, what, what you notice, and uh, I'd be happy to um, include that in a segment in the future. So this past weekend, my nephew was playing baseball here in the Grand Rapids area, and so 
my brother and his family came over and they were watching the different games and such and I wasn't working any uh, tournaments I had one that I assigned but I, I just wanted to visit with them and, and see him play you know because he's going off to college um, after after this tournament you know and, and this is the last opportunity to see that so um, I was able to of course you know watch some umpires uh, while I was doing that and you know it's it's tough uh, when you are an umpire and um, you're seeing other umpires, especially if you see them doing something that maybe isn't um, isn't the best, and you certainly don't ever. I mean, I'm always conscious of not throwing umpires under the bus when I'm standing on the on the sidelines, you know, or you know, outside the fence or whatever. And I try to certainly not do that if I'm you know on the field with them, no matter how poorly they might be doing. And I would hope that others would do that for me as well. You, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt. But there was a there were a few things that I saw this weekend that were um, that were grating at me a, a little bit. Um, number one, umpires with cell phones on the field. I mean, I tell guys that work for me that they should not be doing that. Um, there's only maybe a couple of situations, um, legitimate situations, in which I think it's okay. Maybe if you brought your phone on the field. Um, I'll, you, your wife is pregnant or something and she might go into labor and you're just working this game because you don't like to give up the games something like that somebody's in the hospital or something or I don't know whatever something like that but then again if those are the situations maybe you should have given back the game to begin with so in, in a roundabout way maybe there's no reasons to have that on there some people are like well I, I need it for timing well you can get a stopwatch oh I need it for um, potential weather you know what if potential weather comes in and starts raining, you're going to see that. You know, you, you can use your senses for all these things. You can see the clouds getting darker. You can hear, you know, thunder and see the lightning. Um, there really is no reason to have it out there. And, and it's just, you know, in your pocket or something, and you're more likely to take a look at it or something like that. Even as an assigner, when I've, um, I've been working a tournament and... Um, I know there might be potential issues or something that might pop up. I don't take my phone on the field with me. I, I leave it in the car or in the locker room or wherever I might be. And I, um, I check that stuff afterward because when I'm on the field, I want to be 100% focused on what I'm doing there, you know. And in a roundabout way, it's kind of nice just to say, well, whatever. <laughs> I can't deal with that right now. I'm just umpiring this baseball game. I mean, that's a common thing if you, you know, when I get off the field, there was some issue that I have to deal with now between games or whatever it might be. I say, well, I just got off the field, blah, blah, blah. I tell them what's going on. Um, but I saw these umpires with phones on the field, checking them between innings, home plate umpire and the base umpire. It was um, very irritating to me to see that. At one point, uh, when I saw the guy on the field with, with the phone, I, I, I did yell out, put your phone away, and, and my daughter was there and was telling me to be quiet. But I couldn't, you know, I think he kind of heard me, but he didn't stop. Then the next day, uh, this the guy that was working the bases was working the plate at another field that we went to, and there was a guy working the bases that works for me, works games for me. And he was on his phone, and so was the, the plate umpire again, um, in between innings and stuff. So I watched this for an inning or so, and it looks, you know, terrible out there when you're doing that. And what are you doing on your phone? 
That's the other thing. I don't. What are you doing? Playing Pokemon Go or something? I mean, I don't understand what you're doing out there. You're, you're sending text messages. You're updating some kind of social media status. I mean, I don't understand what you're even doing on your phone, um, other than not paying attention to what's going on on the baseball field. Um, and you know, there are things that happen in between innings too. Um, you know, let's say somebody got hit by a pitch, or somebody you know had a hard slide, or something like that, and you should be paying attention to what players are doing, what people are saying, and how things are going. That's you know, you don't stop officiating just because there's the changeover between innings or something. Nonetheless, um, at one point, I walked over to uh, the first base side, and I um, made my presence known to the umpire that works games for me from time to time. I basically said, "Man, you got to get off your phone." What are you doing? Um, he said, oh, yeah, I know. So he, he got off his. And then the plate umpire, um, after, even though I didn't really know this guy, um, I called him over because he's working you know, 10 minutes from my house, and he's got one of the, our college umpiring hats on. And I, I told him, I said, hey, man, if you're going to work games in the Grand Rapids area and you're going to wear that college hat, you can't be on your phone, man. you, you got to be doing things the right way. And this goes doubly for you, the base guy, because you should know better because, you know, you work in this area. You know how we try to do things. The guys weren't on their phones the rest of the game. Then I I saw them the next day because my uh, nephew had another game there at the same place. And um, the the plate guy who was from out of town was working again, wasn't on his phone. So that's good. At least those guys, you know, respected that and did what they were supposed to. But I just don't, I just don't get it, man. Um... I don't think I, I, I've never brought my phone on the field. Um, I don't, and like I say, I don't really think there's a very good reason to do so. So I guess that's my advice for um, maybe you newer umpires out there. Do not bring your phones on the field. Do not use it as a timing device. I know a lot of people do that, but stop doing that. And you know, go on Amazon or whatever place you like to go to to buy sporting good equipment. And uh, buy a good cheap stopwatch and use that. There are several out there you can get it, you know, twenty dollars or less probably. That's a pretty solid one that's going to work. And you just got to put batteries in it every so often. Okay, that's all you need out there. You put that in your back pocket uh, if you're the one keeping the time and everything. And leave the cell phones in the car or in the locker room, and you know you'll be a better umpire because of it. All right, your focus would be much better. You need to, you know. It is a, a, a little bit of a breather between innings. I mean, you're paying attention to what's going on, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, but you should be focusing on what's going on, what you're doing well. Maybe if there was something you were a little fast on, you might not have missed a call or something like that. But you should be focused on those things, right? You should be focused on, you know, if there's a baseball on the field, if there's a, a pitching change, um, if there's, you know... Something strange going on in one of the dugouts, okay? All those things are things that you should be paying attention to um, between the innings. Um, And uh, you can't do that if you're on your phone, all right? So that is one of my takeaways. And, you know, it's like these guys probably made some good calls and had some good mechanics out there and some good rotations and things like that. But you know what? All that was completely lost because you had your phone out on the field. And, uh, you know, we have to have our impressions are very important at all times, you know, when we first get out there, but also throughout the game. Just think about that. If you're sitting there at a game and you see some people doing that, what would you be thinking about it? Probably similar things to what I was thinking about it. So there you go. Stay off those phones.
So there we have it, another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Thanks for sticking with me all the way through. I hope it was worthwhile to you, and I do plan to try to, you know, be as regular as I can with these episodes. Every two to three weeks is really what I would like to shoot for, not every couple months or so, two or three months or whatever it might be. Um... I think that makes it a little bit more enjoyable. And I know I have some listeners out there that um, appreciate the things I do for the podcast. But as I always say, I always enjoy feedback and suggestions, um, you know, and even a little criticisms. I can take that. You know, if there's something you don't like or something that you think I should do a little bit better, uh, let me know. You know, hey, I'm an umpire and I've been lucky enough to move up uh, in the umpiring ranks over the, the last few years. And so I, well, I'm not able to do that if I can't take some constructive criticism. I certainly can take that, okay? But, you know, be nice about it, right? Um, anyway, it's always nice to get a little praise, too. So that, that's good. If, you, if there's something that you liked, you liked a certain segment, let me know. And uh, if you had some unique situations in some games this summer or even in the springtime that uh, you want to share with me and let me know what I think about it, that's fine. If there's some topic you want me to cover... Um, I'm thinking about doing something on umpire camps and the benefits of those again. I know I've done that before, but um, I know there's some that are in certain areas of, of the country that uh, would be beneficial. I know the ones here in the Midwest. So I would like to hear your experiences with umpire camps and what you think um, are the benefits or, or negatives of those as well. Um, and I, you know, just ha- we can just start a little conversation on those kind of things, right? Um, if there's some, you know, equipment things you want me to talk about, if there's, um, you know, different, uh, things about different levels of baseball, I've been lucky enough to work many levels of baseball, uh, that we could talk about, or, um, you know, maybe there's specific things like, you know, just general ideas on calling balls and strikes or, um, positioning at a certain base or, um, general mechanics things, any of those kind of things. Just uh, shoot me an email or uh, a voice message or something, and I will definitely put together a um, segment on that. I always love that. That's one of the more exciting things I like to do is when I get a message from somebody and they have a few questions or something, I'm like, oh, man, I can put that right in there. And um, it kind of gets me going, and and I usually get out an episode a bit quicker because I've got stuff I I can work with, and and it's kind of timely as well. So that's it, man. We've come to the conclusion of another episode. As I always say, keep calling strikes.